My name on the internet is Rents Fur, and my real name is Lawrence, but people call me Larry. On the internet, he is by me old Kaja, but uh, we call him Andy. We do. <laughs> Today's show is mostly about um, Decca, the first and second part of their audition. The first part was the live test at the Cavern, and the second was uh, the... They had to go down to London on the first of the year to uh, right. do a studio test, which they called a commercial test. We are in the first half of January 1962. Later in the show, we have a very special guest who calls in. Actually, he just left a voice message, but it was one of the surviving Beatles. I am not worthy. Listeners will have to guess which one for now, needless to say. I was very surprised and uh, not a little bit starstruck. I totally didn't expect him to respond. It was like surreal, but very cool. It was very, it was unbelievable. I, I, so I talked with his assistant, and we have we have permission to publish it with conditions that I won't go into. Um, it's a short message, but of course, we'll be we'll make a big deal about it um, later in the show. Um, what? What is all this mumbo-jumbo? People here say pretty much exactly that the first time they encounter others within the first couple of weeks of every new year. The first line's a greeting, and the second line is almost like asking each other for well wishes. In effect, Happy New Year. Let's hope it's a good one. Without any fear. The story where we are now in early January 1962 continues a lot of the same elements we went over in our recent episodes. The basic story remains but is getting more intense. That is, they were huge in Liverpool and keep getting huger, <laughs> but nationwide they remain barely noticed. That is the main story of this this sort of era yeah. in the Beatles story. Um, they are now the undisputed kings of the cavern and hosted their own Christmas show there. Um, they topped the Mersey Beat poll just 60 years and three days ago. Yep. If the region was the Beatles' womb, let's call it Mother Mersey. <laughs> Mother Mersey was beyond nine months pregnant by this time, more like 12 months. Locally, they're bigger than Jesus now. <laughs> um, but on a national level, they weren't even as popular as Brian Cohen, the very naughty boy who wasn't the Messiah but happened to be born in the stable next to where Jesus was born. You've been watching Monty Python movies again, haven't you? Yes, you got it. You got me. <laughs> And uh, yeah, so the Coens were next to the Of Nazareth's <laughs> family. 
Seriously, though, they, uh, they, speaking of the Beatles, not, not the Nazareths, they'd already been outgrowing the local scene. It's now as if Mother Mersey is finally in labor, having regular contractions, calling Dr. London. She's about to burst. Um, are things about to happen? Well, loads, actually. The Beatles have just had their first major audition with Decca Records. They'll be rejected, but they don't know that yet. My Bonnie was would be released in the UK on Polydor Records out of Germany on January 5th. It wouldn't sell much, but at least it was out there. Uh, Brian Epstein would put the boys in suits in March. They would head back to Hamburg for a third residency in April and find out tragically about the death of Stuart Sutcliffe. They would be signed to EMI in May, but they don't know that yet. They would record their first songs for EMI in June, but they don't know that yet. John, Paul, George, and Brian would talk about replacing Pete during the summer, but Pete didn't know that yet. Uh, Ringo would take over on drums in August, which George Harrison had been hoping for, but they didn't know that yet. Ultimately, the Beatles' first official single, Love Me Do, would be released by EMI on Parlophone Records, produced by George Martin in October. But of course, they didn't know that yet. 1962 is quite a year. It is. Back to the new year. By the way, uh, did you know, Andy, that you were born in the year of the dragon? Well, that makes perfect sense to me. Dragon, that sounds good. Uh, Well, so now that we're in the new year, what year does that make that now? Now, um, so 2022 is the year of the tiger on the Asian lunar zodiac thing. And you know what? What? This ties in with the episode before last when we mulled over the difference between celebrating 50-year or 60-year anniversaries. Mm. On this zodiac, originally from China, but also observed in every New Year celebration in Japan, Korea, and other Asian locales. I'm in Japan, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yes, but get that out of the way. You're in Japan. He is in Nashville, which is in the United States. Yes, it is. (laughs) There are cycles of 12 years in the Zodiac. So 60 years uh, contains five complete cycles of 12 years. Five times 12, right? Hmm. This means that every new year in our Beatles 60 project, the past we're studying will be the same animal year as the present. 1962, Tiger. 2022, Tiger. Cool, huh? That is excellent. That's a really good way to remember things. So, I was born in 1964, and you say that was the year of the dragon. Yep. Well, what about you? Me. Uh, year of the rat. Oh, good. 1960. <laughs> 1960. We celebrated that same Zodiac year two years ago in 2020. The, the Beatles became the Beatles in 1960, and I was born that year. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> It's the year of the rat. 
and now uh, it's over 61 years ago. <laughs> Screw the Gregorian calendar. 50 years can't be divided by 12. What good is it? Um, 60 is where it's at. It's what was meant to be. I say 50, pff, 50 schmifty. I agree. Yeah. Pff. I've never understood Anno Domini. Did you know that um, Jesus is believed to have been born in the year 4 BC? Hmm. It's another miracle. <laughs> he was already four when he celebrated his first Christmas. It's mind-blowing. Yeah, just to recap then, it's 1962. It's the very beginning of 1962. It's the first week of 1962. Right. In our time machine minds, you know, we've established that the Beatles, even in media, are all over Liverpool, just everywhere on posters and getting into the papers and probably, I don't know, probably even parents have heard about them. I don't know. It's possible. But enormous. Like, it's past due. It's been happening for a while, but now it's really, really, really nagging at them that they're past due for going nationwide and getting into, you know, um, media and in on record, on, on vinyl. They're already on vinyl, sort of, but they want to make their own record. And so y- you just listed a bunch of things that they don't know yet, because 62, we know, because it's 60 years later, we know all that happened afterward. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, we're not deluding ourselves. We're not, it's not really 1962. <laughs> um, we know what's going to happen, but they don't. But it's going to be a big, 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 big year for them. Really amazing year for them. And they don't know it yet. But like, what I want to ask you is, give us uh, what you think, you know, because we've been following the story every day. We all have been in our group and in our project and on Barmy Old Kaja, following it every day. The sense of where they think they're going in 62 in all these cases. They already know that, like, uh, I wish we had Ringo, right? That's at least coming, yeah. yeah. Or maybe George has that idea already or somebody, right? George was definitely first, yeah. Yeah. What What else? What, what else do they really not know or do they have an inkling or do they wish or do they guess or, you know... I have a feeling that they had a lot of confidence, um, which I think led into their frustration. It's like, why isn't this happening yet? Because I think they did expect it to happen mm. at that point. They'd already been through the idea of, well, should we give up because because nothing is happening? I think that they really believed, for example, going into the DECA uh, audition, I think that the rejection was a big surprise. They really actually thought they were going to come out of that with a contract. Even with more rejections coming, I really think that they th- they thought that something was going to happen, and uh, at least for a time. By the time you get to going back to Hamburg in April, maybe some of that was starting to wear off a little bit because they had gotten a lot of rejections at that point. Mm. But as we start 1962, I think they really thought that things were happening. And it, as easy as it is to just run through like a simple list of all the things that would happen this year, 1962, the year of the tiger, all of these events and more have fascinating underlying details, all the things that we'll be talking about as the year progresses. 
Speaking of going in repeating cycles, reading Lewison, we find that the London record company men, all of them were men at this time, mm. they seem nervous or desperate to kind of divine the next trends or fads to uh, try to anticipate or predict what the next craze would be. They'd rely on their American industry counterparts as like crystal balls or oracles. They uh, were given to making grand assertions in the music press, like beat groups are done, for example. Right, yeah. That basic idea was parodied in that hilarious scene from A Hard Day's Night, right, where George is mistaken for an actor who will appear on a show about teen trends, and he frightens the producer of the show by not falling right in line with what they think the current trend is supposed to be. <laughs> I, I barely remember it. Did he um, wander into that, or was it... Yeah, he was. He kind of just walked into the wrong room. <laughs> <laughs> and they're, they're like, well, trend setting, what's the next trend going to be? Right, they, they, they look at him and say, oh yeah, our, our guy is here, he's supposed to be telling us about it. Here, look at these shirts, and tell us how much you love them, and George is like, I hate them. <laughs> you know they're grotty <laughs> yes exactly uh, I'll find a clip we'll play it cooperate you won't beat Susan and who's this Susan when she's at home only Susan Campy our resident teenager you'll have to love her she's your symbol oh you mean that posh bird who gets everything wrong I beg your pardon oh yeah the lads frequently sit down the television and watch her for a giggle in fact once we all sat down wrote these letters saying how gear she was and all that rubbish she's a trendsetter it's her profession. She's a drag, a well-known drag. We turn the sound down on her and say rude things. Get him out of here. Have I said something you missed? Get him out. He's knocking the program's image. You don't think he's a new phenomenon, do you? Oh, no, 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 no. It's all right. He's just a troublemaker. The change isn't due for three weeks yet. All the same, make a note not to extend Susan's contract. And let's not take any unnecessary chances. Hmm? Wasn't that great? That was awesome. <laughs> I read your blog post on the DECA audition, and you do a great service to readers by really clarifying that the audition was done in two parts. They have the live test at the cavern, which they passed with flying colors, colors, hmm. and then the studio recording, which uh, was referred to as a commercial test. We'll see how they did there. <laughs> Uh, sandwiched in time between these two halves of the DECA talent scouting process, Brian gets a response from Ron White at EMI, politely declining the Beatles. Uh, apparently Ron played my Bonnie for only two of the four A&R heads of the EMI labels. If I didn't already know how the rest of the 20th century went, I wouldn't have predicted in January 1962 that the Beatles had missed their chance with both EMI and DECA. Well, yeah, it seemed that way. I mean, we've been talking about rejections. I don't want to give away too much before the appropriate times, but that's right. Those rejections came from both EMI at this point with their letter from Ron White and then from DECA soon, uh, and more were coming. So it must have been something strange that ultimately landed them at EMI's Parlophone Records division produced by George Martin. And here's a hint. <laughs> it, it, it was. was. In any case, George Martin obviously ended up feeling pretty good about the whole situation. 
Eventually. Eventually. <laughs> In fact, you know, um, anyone who's listened to our recent episodes will know if you go back and listen to the George Martin episode, it, it is explained yeah. how it happened. Imagine if Nori Paramore, um, who George Martin was so jealous of all the time, <laughs> imagine if Nori had heard the Beatles and had signed them to the uh, Columbia label. George Martin would have been so depressed and maybe suicidal, and <laughs> the Beatles would have... The, well, they'd be without George's creative input on using the studio in fresh ways. Yeah, too true. The EMI adversaries, George Martin and Nori Paramore. <laughs> I think in the end, we'd say that George won. But you make a great point. If the Beatles had become label mates with Cliff Richard <laughs> at EMI's Columbia division, I'm not so sure that they would have progressed much past, you know, I want to hold your hand and she loves you. Well, maybe Hard Day's Night and Help. George Martin was already well into experimenting with electronic sounds, backwards music, slowing down and speeding up tapes, all those kinds of things. So he was an important part of what allowed the Beatles to move past that, you know, mop top period and into more interesting and innovative music. He was already doing um, incredible comedy with their favorite goons, you know, and absolutely musique concrète. So he was—he's really well, was a good match, even though he didn't know it at the time. That, right, exactly. It just match made in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> it just happened to be a great match. It's so cool the way things work out. But then again, I think that that's the way like the evolution of everything is. You know, things that succeed. And are passed on to generations, you know, things that last. Yeah. <laughs> Those are the things that had the lucky breaks, that the lucky things happened, you know, or, or were well suited or adaptive to the environment or whatever, you know? Yeah. So, yes. I often think evolution and history are kind of like the same story in a way, but. Yeah. But anyway. Okay, now back to DECA in London on the first of the year, um, the DECA studio uh, commercial test. Now, about Pete's performance, they weren't uh, impressed at all. We can hear that he was a one-trick pony and didn't really enhance any of the tracks. I haven't measured the tempo, but it seems that others have, and it wandered, apparently. In Beatles lore, it comes up all the time that neither Decca nor EMI would have been willing to work with Pete. George Martin even had to be persuaded to work with Ringo. Recently, our friend Tim Summer wrote a blog post about this aversion studio producers and engineers had to group's own drummers. And I'll quote Tim. He, uh, if people don't know, he's a rock journalist, basically. 
He's at his very best here just a few months ago, deftly deconstructing the, quote, oft-told story that George Martin rejected Pete Best and or encouraged the Beatles to get a better drummer. Um, I don't know that everyone believes that, but he wants to dispel this. I haven't fact-checked all of this, but he's explaining so completely confidently that I'm sure this must be right. Um, he, in his entertaining and persuasive way, explains... I'm going to concretely disprove this myth and toss it out of the window for all eternity in six syllables. Bobby Graham and Clem Catini. This idea may seem supremely foreign to any band that came of age in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and beyond. When a self-contained pop-rock combo arrived at a major London recording studio for a session in the early and mid-1960s, there was virtually zero expectation that the drummer they walked in with would be playing on that finished record. This is the reason that Graham and Catini play on almost every pop, rock, and beat record of the era. Even a cursory list would double the length of what I have to say. Suffice to say that Graham, in particular, is the sound of the British invasion. The snap and oomph he brings to nearly all of the early hits of The Kinks, Them, The Dave Clark Five, The Pretty Things, The Animals, Herman's Hermits, etc., help define the sound of the genre itself. It would have been extremely unlikely that an experienced producer like George Martin, working for a gigantic company like EMI, would consider using an unproven drummer on a session. Nor would Martin have ever used that as the basis to fire a drummer. What bands did in the studio and what they did on stage were considered entirely different parishes. The studio was Parlophone's concern. The live performances, the domain of the band, their management, their booking agent, and the promoter. And there's zero evidence that any promoter ever said, dump that Pete Best. So that was Tim. What do you think? I think Tim has put this very well. And to add to it, remember that, as you said, George Martin also didn't allow Ringo to play on the drum set on the Beatles' first recordings with him in September of 1962. Studio drummer Andy White was brought in and actually appears as the drummer on the album version of Love Me Do from the Beatles' first album, Please Please Me. Right, yeah. That version with White on drums was actually the version used for the U.S. single release in 1964. Hmm. What's clear to me, as Tim said, that the separation between production and live shows is all important. There's also, uh, even stateside, there's a, there's a similar thing going on, isn't there? I mean, all this should be very familiar to anyone who knows um, American hits of the time. Yes, the Wrecking Crew is what you're referring to, right? So, um, yeah, I, I mean, this group of, of people who played on a huge number of American hits in the 60s. Um, I can probably only name one or two of them, which is probably the way that history is always going to remember them. It's just the Wrecking Crew. Yeah. There was What's Her Name on Bass, who was awesome. Carol Kay, right? Carol Kay. Yeah. And 
was Glenn Campbell one of them? Or? I think he was for a while. Yeah, and they were they they were the band for the Monkees and who else? There's loads of yeah. I'd have to look into it to get the names of them, but yeah, it probably goes on and on. Probably Nancy Sinatra. I don't know this, but uh, <laughs> these boots are made for walking. I do, do, do. We have a Paul Revere and the Raiders Day coming up on where the action is that's just out of sight. And they do this this song that's coming up in what we call on the show their eight costumes, you know, the caveman things. It has it's gotta be an award winner. It's one of the strangest, funniest looking things you've ever seen in your life. But it's a takeoff on this fantastic record by Sonny and Cher. It was within George Martin's power to use a different drummer in the studio. Obviously commonly done. That's what you just heard. <laughs> Right. But a decision about replacing Pete as a member of the band was only going to be made by John, Paul and George Harrison. <laughs> Martin and even Brian may have agreed with or been OK with the idea. But the decision itself was solely in the hands of the trio. Okay, so here's the message that was, uh, we're finally getting to it. This is the moment you've all been waiting for. That's right, you've been waiting patiently. Here's the message that was left for us by his nibs. (laughs) (laughs) Who could it be? Wouldn't you like to know? Was it Ringo? Maybe Paul? Maybe Chaz Newby? Probably. Could it be Pete? Uh-huh. More likely, probably Pete. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's another clue for you all. Two episodes back, we we were talking about uh, Paul being in the bath for their when they were all assembled for their important meeting at NEMS. Yeah, December third. Yeah. And we challenged Paul, current day Paul, to call in and explain why he was deliberately late for the first down-to-business meeting at Dems with the other Beatles and with Brian. Uh, let's, uh, let's hear, well, let's play back the clip from a couple of episodes ago. Yes, dum, dum, dum. Here, here's what happened. The meeting, the December 3rd, that's a Sunday, that, that meeting was scheduled for 4.30 in the afternoon. John, George, and Pete, they were on time, but Paul wasn't. Mm. By around 5.15, Brian asked George to call Paul, see what was going on, and they were told that Paul had just gotten up and was in the bath. He ultimately wouldn't arrive until about 6 o'clock. So why he did that is somewhat of a mystery. Did he just oversleep, or was he trying to send a message? I'm not going to just dive right in, and you're going to see how I can be a pain. I don't know. Sir Paul McCartney, if you are listening to this podcast, please go to anchor.fm slash Beatles 60. Leave a message and say, like, I did it because I was, like, passive-aggressive. <laughs> Possibly. Tell us what the fuck was going on. Come on, Paul. John actually always believed that Paul was not really that excited about bringing Brian on because he does have a tendency to be very conservative. Oh, I remember that one, Andy? I do remember that. <laughs> yeah. It was a good one. Yeah. Well, um, this apparently got under Paul's skin. Um, one of our subscribers, who I'm not 
at liberty to name. You know who you are, though. <laughs> uh, is connected with a project that Paul's working on at the moment, actually. So she played that for him. I got a call from his assistant. I didn't talk to him, actually. He preferred not to be interviewed. I never got to talk with Paul, but he was willing to leave his response as a voicemail on my old machine that I have here in Osaka. <laughs> he actually dialed Osaka. Okay, are we on? Okay, uh, hello Andy and Larry. This is Paul McCartney calling in about when we first met with Brian and why I was a bit late and the story that went round that I was in the bath at the time and how these stories get blown out of proportion. And I think now would be a good time for me to correct them. First of all, I want to say we all love Brian. Okay. Epi, as we knew him. And as to the big question that you've asked, the one that's apparently been hanging round, this was some 60 years ago. You know, who can remember? <laughs> Certainly not me. The question is, was he really in the bath for an hour? I don't know. I who can remember? If we've learned anything about the Beatles in 60 years, fellas, it's that time is irrelevant, really. We were having fun, you know, in those days, but we can't go on these days spreading rumors and expecting people to believe it because you just never really know where these stories sort of come from. You know, they're always just sort of appearing out of the mists of time. But now, you know, because of... Beatles 60 or whatever it is. Yeah, it's all starting to get a bit cantankerous, really. So I suppose here on the internet, it's easy to sort of get your, your facts wrong. So luckily, I've found a solution to it. I've found this fella, Eric Howell, who might help set the record straight. Uh, Eric, love, I've just been leaving a message for Beatles 60. Can we have a word to set the record straight? Hi guys, I better fess up to this ruse to tell all your listeners on Beatles 60 that that was, in fact, not the voice of Paul McCartney. It was just me, Eric Howell, having a bit of fun, and Andy and Larry asked me to do this. They were in on the gag, so blame them, listeners. But I do do Beatle voices, as you just heard, and, and, uh, and I enjoy it very much. I have my own podcast called A Day in Their Life, an audio drama of the Beatles story, which is exactly what the name suggests. And I'd love to turn you on to it, to what is essentially, apparently, the world's first and only audio drama of the Beatles story, created and produced by myself, with a little help from my friends across the pond in the UK and all the rest of it. Beatledrama.com. But you can subscribe and listen to the, the fully produced theater of the mind experience in Beatles history, as if... You were there. Andy and Larry, thank you for all you do. Thanks for having me on your show. And uh, yeah, keep listening, everybody. Peace and love. Peace and love, everybody. Peace and love. <laughs> okay, now everybody knows that it was a... That was, it, that it was not Paul. It was bull <laughs> We bullshitted you. <laughs> Did you see it coming? I am sure everyone's going to say, that was the worst impression. I knew right away it was fake. Yeah. Yeah, but no, because it's an important piece of information that we that we got out of that from Eric. Yes, it you know it it, it matters. Uh, it matters just like Neil. This yeah. fundraiser matters. Um, but in fact, I think I think Eric's you know 
no impression is ever perfect, and it's easy to criticize any impersonator. <laughs> sure. Uh, yeah. I'm not someone who does that. I like, I like, he's great, by the way, but I like even like bad impersonations make me laugh because they're so, you know, that, that's also funny, you know. And you do some of them yourself, so, you know. I do bad impersonations. <laughs> so, as a practitioner of bad impersonations, I really appreciate Eric. And I don't appreciate people who go like, I knew right away it was fake. That didn't sound, <laughs> it sounded nothing like him. That drives me fucking crazy. <laughs> You know, with his project, we want people to go and look at this. Um, there are already a few episodes of, it's kind of like a radio theater of the mind, like old time radio stories. Yeah. You know, yeah. like, like, um, Flash Gordon or something, or what was it? <laughs> <laughs> that was before my time. So <laughs> the shadow. Um, the shadow, right. So <laughs> there's a whole lot of synergy, um, to use like a corporate phrase. <laughs> <laughs> synergy between his project and our project uh in that we're both kind of doing like a time machine thing um what they're doing is confidently making an accurate dramatization of a non-fiction historical narrative the beatles story yeah and especially of this story it deepens our understanding of the history other similarities. So, um, I think every, even fan, we're not, a, we don't have fan sites. We have kind of study sites in a way. But in fact, we're all a little bit fan like as well. I mean, we, we like the Beatles, you know? Yeah. <laughs> oh, we love them actually. I, I just don't revere them, <laughs> you know? That, isn't that the thing you can, they, I love them, but I don't revere them. That's what I would say. It's an interesting thing. I, I mean, for me, they're just, they're ingrained in my brain. They, they've been part of my entire life. I, it, it's like, you know, yeah, thinking yeah. about them is just what I think about at any given time. It's not a matter of me thinking, Oh, I love them. It's a matter of there they are. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. 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 We grew up with them and they're like family in a way, you know? Yeah. So. But any of, uh, any podcast or Facebook group or, you know, Twitter, you have a Twitter, what would you call it? A Twitter account. Yeah. A Twitter account. Yes. That focuses on, on all, uh, Beatles 60 stuff. Yep. And then any fan group even, um, you know, the Beatles are awesome or whatever, you know, <laughs> <laughs> whatever they call their groups you know or deep beetles the beetles stands stands all the stands the stands yes and even on tumblr we have lots of young stands of the beetles yeah there's always a little bit of a balance where we're focusing on our experience oh i saw them on ed sullivan yeah or we're focusing on their experience like what was paul thinking when john said this to him in the get back movie <laughs> right yeah yeah or like he was such a good um stepdad to heather and like oh you know get, sort of getting into their experience mm -hmm. i would say mm -hmm. so what we have in common eric's project and ours is that we're more on the their experience side does that make sense i think so how do i say that we're slanted to we're skewed towards their experience. But of course, we are also talking about ourselves sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> the other thing in common is we both do a, a deep dive into the period. Um, Grant Heaton, who um, organizes the Facebook group with me, he once said to me privately that, and you, I think you'll agree, what we're doing, it's almost like we're researching for a period movie or something, you know? Yeah, it kind of is. That's a good way of putting it. It is like we're reliving it. I think people won't believe that when we say that. I think it sounds like, oh, get away. You can't, you don't have a fucking time machine. And Harrison would say, you weren't the, <laughs> right? And that's true. But mm, 
just like reading a novel, you kind of you transported to a, another place or time, you know? I think that's true. And also, I mean, with some of the older, you know, not the not the, the Twitter stands, but the but some of the older people that you know were that were around um at the time, they they say to me that that it's like they are reliving it. You know, going through there and going, yeah, I remember this happening. Yes, I was there for this, and, and yes, I I have a, a a cavern membership card and and things like that. It's great. Exactly, it's amazing that we have people who like who who were at the top ten, played at the cavern or the iron door or whatever, and yeah, yeah, and so through and through, you know, we're not just using Mark Lewis, and although he is he is the grand poobah of all historians, but you know, we have Aaron Weber's historiography, mm-hmm. we have have all these like a whole literature to draw on and then all these first-hand accounts and then just all this beetle talk and we're following it sequentially every day yeah eric's project is also going sequentially so it's kind of like a soap opera well because it's it's fictionalized in, or whatever the word would be in that sense you know you, you have the people talking to each other and things like that it does come come out like that a little bit you know we're telling facts He's telling a story, <laughs> maybe. But I think we are too. It's all sort of a narrative. Like even Lewison yeah. is giving us a narrative. It almost reads like a novel. Uh, it's, it's like more amazing than a novel in a way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> even though we know how it's going to turn out. <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah. yeah, I really feel sort of daily we're kind of steeped in it and the sequential thing really does have an effect it's like a a longitudinal study you know like <laughs> um a deep understanding of uh I mean, I would, I would put it this way. We've talked about this in the past. Eric doesn't and we don't. Even Lewison doesn't. Even, even Aaron Weber doesn't. None of us has, are, are actually reliving it. None of us has a time machine. Right. Uh, even the Beatles can't really retell the story right. But through everybody together and, and through following it a day at a time, we develop a very, very, confident understanding because we know what they were doing last week yeah you know we know what we know that paul didn't sleep yesterday so he's going to be groggy today you know (laughs) in 1962 or that they had to drive down to deca in in the cold in the most freezing was it nine degrees below zero centigrade right is that what they said it was they said it was like some of the worst weather that there had ever been like coldest in record or something in a hundred years or something yeah they drive down New Year's Eve, and and people in that temperature were jumping into the fountain. <laughs> Can you believe it? <laughs> That's right. That's what they said. It's it's really hard to explain to other people. It's it is like watching a soap opera daily, where you have a sense of time and a sense of what people had just gone through last week and the week before, and so on. The characters in the story. Mm-hmm. So, so that, yeah, we know how they would have, you know, they stayed at the hotel and we kind of know how they would feel at the moment. And the other benefit is... I think I have more books than you do, because I'm up to about 80 at this point. It's an amazing thing to be, to put together all of the information that's coming from all of the different sources um, and to put together, as you'll call it, like the most confident idea of what had happened. On a single day, yeah. Yeah, right. And so, um, let me put it this way. People who follow our project aren't confused about what happened after what, you know? People tend to know that it was, like, Hamburg wasn't just one thing, but it was... We know it went, like, they <laughs> yeah. did the Indra, then the Kaiser Kel. We know that they were booted. We know, you know, 
uh, that the Litherlin thing came after that, after they were booted, and yeah. that was the end of that year. We have a sense of um, how things progressed. All right, and that brings us back to Beetledrama.com, which is Eric's uh, project. And it's an amazing project. It's not just one guy. You know, he's he's paying for voice actors in the UK. You know, we, we put a lot into our podcast, and we do have some production value, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> I do sweat over it a little bit. Um, you but do. If, but for us, it's a hobby. We, we, uh, you have your other activities. <laughs> you have your parenting to do, and I have, <laughs> I have a business to take care of. <laughs> and this is just a hobby for us. But um, for him, it's a, it's a major expense. It's 10 times the, the effort and the expense. And so he needs to raise funds to do this. And this is why we're featuring him in this episode. If you want to look at what he's done so far, it's really amazing. Go to Beetledrama, one word, Beetledrama.com. And um, the Indiegogo campaign we're putting in our show notes. So, yeah, we'll have both links there, yeah. All right, let's do both. Yeah. Let's be generous. Yeah. It's this, Why not? the season for giving, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so help Eric. you didn't notice we had an uh, a bonus episode that wasn't on the normal podcasting networks <laughs> it was only on mixcloud and it was our new year's eve uh bonus episode uh where we played music mostly from mostly the songs that they covered in the deca session but and a few of them or the beatles and um there's other music from 1961 and 1960 so go have a listen and we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Um, I, go ahead. I was going to say, that, I mean, that was a cool thing. Why, why was it on Mixcloud? Because the usual Beatles 60 podcast is distributed by Anchor FM, which is Spotify. Yeah. Well, I love Anchor that we do this podcast on for its um, simplicity. This this isn't a paid plug. I really do honestly like <laughs> the convenience of getting distributed on Apple Podcasts, Google, and all the others. All I have to do is upload, and suddenly we're boom, 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 syndicated all over the world in, in yeah. seconds. You know, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. On Mixcloud, you don't get that. You you upload, and then you're just on Mixcloud. <laughs> you know, um, the thing is, the problem with um, podcasting is you can't use copyrighted music in a podcast without permission from the copyright owner. Right. Sometimes I, I mess around and fake it um, by doing like sneaky remixes of things. But the interstitial music that we have on here that you can actually hear normally is from a service that licenses original music by artists that they can afford. So I pay a small monthly fee. These artists are pretty good, though. So They're very good, yeah. 
Hmm. They're just not big names. So, you know, yeah. we don't have the Coasters or Dinah Washington or the Beatles <laughs> or the Rolling Stones. And in each case, so there are technical ways to get a, to do a workaround, uh, with Anchor because they're owned by Spotify. You could record a little talk like we're doing now. And then you have to do a separate thing where there's a Spotify song and then you go back to this and you have to be a United States customer. And it's just like too many conditions. It's not convenient for me. I like to just do the whole show on a piece on a Mac and then upload it. You know, I don't like to mess around like, like with all that. It's not convenient for me. And then Mixcloud is just the opposite problem. It's easy to upload a show full of famous named artists with hit songs, whoever you want. You can play the Beatles if you want. They take care of paying the royalties or whatever, just like Spotify does. But you can't, you cannot distribute to all the podcast networks from Mixcloud very easily. You have to do some kind of complicated workaround again using RSS. Somebody will message us and say, oh, dude, there's a way you can do it, but I'm not interested. <laughs> uh, well, message us then and say it. No, yeah. don't. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not interested in working on it. Oh, you know? okay. All right. Yeah. I, we're already doing enough work on this. I'm just not interested in doing anything extra. <laughs> so I just don't have time for that. So um, basically what I do is, is whatever is convenient. And so Mixcloud is convenient to do a, a radio show full of famous music, basically. And that's what we're, what we did. So. So you can just upload whole albums on Mixcloud? No. No, they want you to treat it almost like DJing. They say you could do anything. You could do a podcast, but in fact, they're kind of geared toward DJs, both live club DJs and radio DJs. They're geared toward that. So in one show, you can repeat the same artists. They have this, this rule, you know, I don't know why, but you can repeat the same artists, uh, no more than three times in a show. Uh, and, and those three times can't be consecutive. So I can go with three coaster songs, three Beatles songs, and three whatever, Beach Boys or something. But I have to alternate. So I go coasters, Beatles, Dinah Washington, coasters, Beatles, Beach Boys, and so on, you know? And, uh, I, yeah, I don't understand why. I'm just following their guidelines. So. Right. But in any case, all of the DECA commercial test tracks are on there. Um, three by the Beatles, the rest by the artists that they were covering. Uh, then there's other 1961 hits, more. That's what you said, right? There's there's the Marvelettes version of Please, Mr. Postman. Which I love. Yeah, it's great. And th obviously, the Beatles would play and record that one. Yep. There's You're Driving Me Crazy by the Temperance 7, which was actually the first number one UK single produced by George Martin. Um, and a couple of my favorite songs ever, um, both of which the Beatles covered, Searchin' and Three Cool Cats, both of them written by Mike Lieber and Jerry Stoller and originally recorded by the Coasters. And I've always said, it is really hard to beat that combination, Lieber and Stoller and the Coasters. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Um, the, just a hit a hit factory, hit machine. That, yeah, it was amazing. Um, great songs. Um, and uh, yeah, yeah, we'll provide the link in the show notes, obviously. And wishing everyone a healthy and happy 1962. Happy New Year, everyone!